Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. This is Tuvia Kopstein. And in this episode, we sit down with attorney Marshall Hubner. Marshall Hubner is perhaps the world's top insolvency and restructuring attorney, which is a euphemism for bankruptcy. And he's worked on some of the most high profile cases in recent history, including Delta Airlines restructuring, AIG, um, Purdue Pharma, you'll hear about all of these cases and interesting insights into the industry, which is not so well known about, although it makes big headlines. Marshall is an inspiring person. We didn't even touch on his hot solo work. He works in addition to the hot solo thing does to restructure companies that are failing and make sure their creditors are paid off. He also has an EMT and saves lives. We didn't even talk about that part. You could ask him yourself, but I just want to mention that the podcast fellowship is what powers our tribe, the podcast and the podcast fellowship is a totally awesome and unique international Jewish young adult outreach nonprofit where we're helping Jewish young adults reconnect and re-understand what Judaism has to teach from the sources with a very meaningful student and mentor relationship one-on-one Without further ado, our tribe the podcast with Marshall Hubner. Okay, welcome, Marshall. So nice to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate your time and sharing your experience with us. So, I'd like to start, of course, just by telling us, please tell us your story. Where did you start from? How did you how did you get into what you're doing now professionally? What do you do professionally? Sure. Well, I guess I started. When I came out of my mom, but I assume you don't want me to go back quite that far. Um, and so we'll fast forward a little bit to senior year of college. Um, I was wrestling really with two options. You know, law school was a possibility, but I always had a pretty academic bent. And so I sort of figured out oh, if I got into the law school of, of my dreams, that was my first choice. I would go there. And if not, I would do something else. Um, I also designed uh, kind of my own major in college called ethics and public policy. I actually wrote my senior thesis on whether you can actually teach business ethics or whether that is a fool's errand. Uh, And so there was another sort of possibility of graduate school. Um, Harvard had a program called Ethics in the Professions uh, that I was also considering. Um, But that was all going to be for a little bit later because I already knew that I was going to be going to Israel um, for my year or years after college. I had won a couple of fellowships. There was a program at Hebrew University. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up both going to grad school at Hebrew U for a year and also learning in yeshiva, um, you know, largely full-time during that year. And I just wrote doubled, doubled down and then was learning exclusively full-time the year after that before coming back and ultimately starting law school. Um, so that's kind of generally how I ended up a, a lawyer. Um, I had no idea in the world what field I was going to go into. I didn't actually know anything about any of the fields. And I, I find most things pretty interesting. So I just sort of got to law firms and sort of, you know, as I often say, like, who would who would choose to be stuck with a sit-down dinner if you could spend your evening at the Schmorg? Um, and so sort of looking at a field that has a lot of variety and a lot of diversity and, um, you know, sort of is constantly changing was sort of how I ended up really completely by accident just falling into insolvency and restructuring. I never took it in law school. I never, frankly, heard of it um, and just ended up in it once I started at law firms during the law school and then afterwards. 
And how long ago, when did you start in this particular track of insolvency and restructuring? So I graduated from law school in 1991, although I was, um, you know, when, when you're in law school, if you're able and lucky enough to be able to get it, you work at law firms during your summers. And so my first sort of you know, taste of working in restructuring was my first summer of law school, which was the summer of 1991. Um, and then I did a little bit of restructuring at all three of my law firm summers. I actually, I actually split all three of the summers. Um, the first summer I spent half at a law firm. Um, and half um, with the Ford Foundation in South Africa, looking into how the, re the judicial system could be restructured for the end of apartheid. Uh, my second summer, I spent half at a law firm and half at a program called YUSSR, which was the HGB University program that ran camps for indigent children um, all over the now former Soviet Union. Back then, it was called the USSR. And I was actually in a city that, unfortunately, for terrible reasons, is quite famous right now. Um, we were in a camp outside of Kherson in Ukraine, which I, the Ukrainians, I think, just back from the Russians and um, near Dnepropetrovsk, which is where the first Lovitcherevi was actually born. Um, and then my third summer, I split between a law firm and going on my honeymoon, um, where my wife and I backpacked through Asia for six weeks and then ended up in Israel for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur uh, to be with family. So it was kind of an interesting odyssey. You know, even during law school, I was still struggling with, I don't really, like, I just want to work in a law firm. There are lots of fun things out there in the world. And I was sort of fortunate and blessed enough to be given opportunities to do some of them. Beautiful. So now tell us, what is what is insolvency restructuring? I know it's huge. Just can you give us a little bit, assume we know nothing and give us a little bit of information on what is the role of a, of a bankruptcy lawyer? Sure. So, I mean, I think the easiest way to describe it is that I, I help fix very big, very broken, very complicated things. Um, and so that can, can vary, um, you know, in many different contexts, in many different ways. So, you know, to give an example of a very large sort of in-court thing, you know, many years ago, um, Delta Airlines went through Chapter 11, it went through a bankruptcy process uh, because its liabilities and its balance sheet and its labor costs were simply more than it could afford. And so we first spent about two years trying to save the company out of court through different financings and things like that. Ultimately, that turned out to not be possible. And so we then took Delta through Chapter 11, um, and it came out with a multi-billion dollar market capitalization. Of course, has since then gone on to be probably the world's most successful um, and strong airline. So that's an example of sort of a classic in-court, you know, you go in and, and, you know, it, it really, it can be analogized ironically, um, or not ironically, but, but, you know, really to like a pizza place, right? So, like, you know, you buy a pizza place and you borrow money from the bank to buy ovens and flour and dough and cheese and your business is just not as successful as you hoped and you can't pay back the loan. And so bankruptcy is a process where the creditors, so in this case, the bank will lend you all the money. You know, you'll say, you can say to them, like, I'll give you 80% of the equity in the business. So you'll own 80%. I'll own only 20% forgive the debt that way i don't need to pay back the loan because instead you'll be an owner and uh, now that i don't have to pay a hundred thousand dollars a year in interest our pizza place actually is making enough money and we can sort of split the profits 80 20 right so one one possibility is you have you you equitize the debt in other words you take money that you used to owe people and they agree to take or are forced to take ownership stakes instead 
Um, there are also going to be many other things that are wrong with companies that can be subject to contracts that they simply cannot afford. Let's say you had a chain of pizza places and, you know, six of them are successful and five of them are terribly unsuccessful. They're in ultra high rent districts and, you know, you just never got traction there. And so, for example, you might have to go into bankruptcy to get rid of the five locations that you simply cannot afford, keep the six, and then give your creditors the ownership of the new, now able to survive pizza business that has six stores instead of 11 stores. Um, then there are very, very complicated things that we do outside of court because, you know, being in court is expensive and unpleasant and there's just a lot that's bad about it. So if you can avoid actual filed bankruptcy proceedings, that's fabulous. So for example, I've represented the United States Treasury and the Federal Reserve Bank on the rescue of AIG, which was the world's largest insurance company. And while sort of the younger people on the phone may not remember the financial crisis of 2009, you know, for many people who are a little older and probably their parents' generation, you know, there was a very, very, very serious fear, uh, legitimate fear and risk that we were going to be heading back into a 1929 full-on recession and the failure of the financial system. Um, many enterprises failed, many huge enterprises failed. The federal government ultimately decided to lend $182 billion to AIG to keep it from failing essentially all over the world. So that's an example of sort of a, in fact, the biggest one in history of an out of court save where tremendous resources are brought to a company to allow it to sort of reorganize its affairs. Ultimately, the U.S. taxpayer, which it really was, it was those of us on this call and, and the like who actually lent the IG this money because it was taxpayer money. Ultimately, they paid back every penny with about $22 billion of profit to the American people. So it actually ended up being a very good deal for everybody. So, you know, bankruptcy can be used to address and, and, and restructuring in general can be used to address and fix sort of different things um, using vastly different techniques. Um, it also, unfortunately, and, and I'll use this as my last example and then joyfully take the next question. You know, bankruptcy has also become a place where most of the country's most terrible mass tort problems end up just because ultimately, you know, if a company does something quite desperately or, or, or despicably wrong, ultimately it fails and failed companies go into bankruptcy. And so that becomes a place where those issues get worked out. And so, you know, whether it's asbestos from the old days or Dalcon Shield, which was a birth control device that went terribly, horribly wrong, or breast implants or the exploding airbags or opioids, you know, most of the country's mass tort crises have ended up in the bankruptcy system, which while it is certainly not perfect and not designed for this, it is, is, you know, there is no other system that is better that is available in the United States. And so I've spent the last over four and a half years being the lead lawyer for the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy estate, which is the maker of a uh, very notorious maker of Oxycontin. Um, and so I guess the easiest way to describe it is that I represent the, the people suing the Sacklers and the Sacklers are the defendants. Um, and our job has been to maximize um, the value available to be distributed to private and governmental opioid claimants, both from the company's assets itself and um, obviously from suing the Sacklers for many billions of dollars and also to ensure that the company does no further harm. All sorts of extraordinary things have been put in place, including a monitor to sort of watch the company's operations, 
the whole sales force was fired and the company downsized about 70%, a, a very complicated self-injunction where we essentially had the company put itself in handcuffs in terms of how it operates, in terms of ensuring best practices. So again, you know, as you can tell, as I use the analogy of smorgasbord before, there's a pretty, a pretty incredibly broad array of different things one can do over the decades in restructuring because all sorts of just very weird, hard, broken things sort of drop down to our little sub-basement. And our job is to figure out how to uh, do the best we can by the stakeholders, employees, victims, and creditors. Okay. So did you have, when you got into this field, which is so fascinating and complex, did you have a mentor or did you, did you study cases of successful restructuring that you could learn from and draw tools from? Um, So all of the above, I absolutely had a mentor. The first, the firm that I spent my first several years at um, had some extraordinary restructuring lawyers, in particular, the most senior person who is currently 91 and still unbelievably intellectually involved in the field. Uh, was my first mentor. He, um, the funny part is that his name is Ron Trost. He has a very, very, very strong personality. Um, that is sort of, you know, sort of like they're always jalapenos in the soda. Um, and ultimately after a few years for various reasons, although I was unbelievably happy there, I moved to a different firm where, where the, my second and main mentor, Don Bernstein is the most proper, understated, you know, sort of like, you know, Park Avenue, like what you would think of if you would think of a senior partner of a, of a law firm that's 200 years old, the so-called white shoe law firm. And so I went from sort of, you know, someone who's like all jalapeno all the time to someone who's always very understated and careful and classy and, you know, almost never even uses adjectives. So I've had two extraordinary mentors with very opposite personalities. They wouldn't have said extraordinary and opposite. No adjectives. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now... In in studying previous, is is there were there like classic cases of successful restructuring, and let's say on the other hand, failed restructuring that you could learn from, or was it mostly learning from the example of your mentors? Yeah, so you know, bankruptcy is 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 very code based. There is a large section of the federal law that is the bankruptcy code, mm-hmm. um, and so there are both statutes, and then there are cases. I mean, that you know, together sort of largely makes up the corpus of law. You know, really, it's, it's interesting and to sort of go to the Jewish angle for a minute. You know, back in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, no big fancy law firm had any bankruptcy lawyers. None. Bankruptcy was considered sort of a, like a schmata field, like a, a, you know, like it oh, was like- actually largely it was, it was largely a Jewish practice area because it was largely small businesses that failed. And it was not particularly lucrative and, and big law firms who at the time often didn't also have any Jews or Catholics or women, except in the Steno pool and the secretaries, um, they just wouldn't touch it. And then what happened was railroads began to reorganize and they were very big, complicated enterprises. And the big fancy law firms realized, wait a second, like you can actually do some real things with this bankruptcy code um, to big businesses and continental airlines was actually it actually went through bankruptcy twice but the first time it went through it was one of the first times that a sort of a major american company went through chapter 11 and all of a sudden the big fancy law firms had a very passionate interest in building bankruptcy groups and many of them actually acquired bankruptcy boutiques Uh Um, there were smaller firms that were sort of dotted 
you know, sort of around the land and, and some built up the, the, the sort of technology in-house. Now, you know, every one of the country's major law firms has a very big bankruptcy and restructuring group. They're usually not called bankruptcy because, you know, clients don't usually want to hear that word when they're meeting a lawyer. It's like, hi, I'm your oncologist. Let's have lunch. Right. Um, and so they're usually called restructuring or strategic situations or, you know, finance and, and whatever. I mean, they have all sorts of euphemisms. Um, but, you know, we, we do a lot of things in court. We do a lot of things out of court, as I described before. So when, at which point does a company need to call upon you to, to do surgery on, their, on all their systems when they, when they find sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a great question. You know, th- there's no, there's no need. It's not like there's like a specific, like exact mathematical moment when one should have restructuring professionals on board. You know, it's a very delicate dance because if we have a firm client, you know, let's say a capital markets client or an M&A client, and it's pretty clear that things are not going very well for them. And very often, you know, bankers, investment bankers and financial advisors who specialize in this space will very often start emailing and saying, hey, you know, we represent company Tuvia, like their fourth quarter results are terrible. Based on our analysis, they're not going to be able to comply with the conditions of their financings starting in February. You know, would you introduce us? Really, I assume you're all over it. And, and there's a lot of tension in that situation because normally to call a client and say like, hey, I think you might have financial cancer right, and, and need oncologists to come on board is not such a socially comfortable call. So there's a big push me, pull you. You know, many companies, frankly, begin too late and they suffer for it because there are things we could have done much earlier. You know, the, the cancer analogy, while it's a little bit painful to use, is not a bad one. You know, sometimes if you catch things early and you take corrective action, you can actually save a company from a far darker pathway and ultimately a darker um, fate. But that they have to be a willing patient and want to bring the right people on board and do the, you know, scans and tests and analyses to figure out sort of what's wrong with their balance sheet. And sometimes it involves, you know, selling prime assets or letting go a lot of people or cutting back benefits or stopping to offer pensions. You know, sometimes it takes very strong medicine. But, you know, the analogy that I sometimes give is, you know, if you have a gangrenous leg, you have two choices. You can either cut it off or wait to wait for it to kill you entirely. And so as painful and terrible as it is to cut off a limb, if the alternative is that the whole body dies, then you're not really actually saving anybody by, quote, being merciful and avoiding the surgery. So, you know, it varies a lot. Um, you know, very few, there, there's a sort of famous clip, you know, how do almost all bankruptcies happen very slowly and then very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, and, that, and that's sort of very often the case in my experience. So you mentioned with the Purdue Pharma that you are representing the the clients, the the victims of of bad pharmaceuticals that are trying to reclaim some of the loss of. Of course, you can't reclaim the loss of being of, of losing a loved one or be, becoming chronically sick, terminally sick. But there, how is it that the company Purdue Pharma is is hiring you and you're representing the the clients that are you're representing the victims of the transgression? Sure. So the, the way that the bankruptcy system works is that the the company, when it files for bankruptcy, automatically becomes a fiduciary for all of its stakeholders. And so, you know, whatever the company was before, once it enters the bankruptcy system, it is by federal law a fiduciary for its stakeholders. 
And since most companies that go into bankruptcy are insolvent, meaning they're, you know, at its most base level, their assets are worth less than their liabilities. That means that you're really a fiduciary for the creditors because the stockholders no longer own the business, right? Because if you're, if you can't pay your debts, then your stockholders don't own anything because your creditors have the right to take the company. And so the minute a company goes into bankruptcy, it becomes a fiduciary for all of its stakeholders. So I was brought on in 2018 um, and realized pretty pretty early on um, that the current structure with the Sacklers as the board members and the company sort of ticking along was was not going to be the, the 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 plan for very long. There were hundreds of lawsuits filed well before I arrived. That quickly moved into the thousands. There were dozens of lawsuits a day being filed. And then, you know, even a very large company couldn't survive the onslaught of, you know, 40 new lawsuits a day. A much smaller company, which Purdue actually is, despite the amount of money that the Sacklers made on it, certainly could not. And so in the opening months of my time there, all the Sacklers were exited from, from the building, exited from the board, exited from management. Their legal fees were cut off. Their benefits were cut off. And then ultimately, a, a largely new board was brought in. It's an independent director's committee, and ultimately the decision was made, which was pretty much a foregone conclusion that the company was best served going into bankruptcy to try to create a forum where all of the claims, and there are over 618,000 filed claims, which is the largest number in U.S. history, totaling over $40 trillion, trillion, not billion, um, which is also the largest claims pool in U.S. history. And so you needed a sort of a, a mechanic where that could all be put on the table and we could figure out an, an efficient way to get as much money as possible to the victims pursuant to an agreed structure. So that's, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, as I said before, for lack of a better home, many mass torts end up in bankruptcy because there is no other system to resolve them. So just uh, curious, curious, not really a question that has to do with your role, but once there's there's a, a board, a family in this case, that starts a company that, that ends up being uh, making terrible mistakes or, or um, unethical practices, because it's a limited liability like all these companies are, they can't be gone after on a personal level. Everything, uh, all, these, all these cases, all these claims are made against the company itself, right? The, the assets of the company? No, they definitely no. can be gone after on a personal level, and they were. Which is why they're going to pay between five and a half and six billion dollars um, into the estate to be distributed to victims. There are a whole variety of, of claims and causes of action you can bring. First of all, they took a huge amount of money out. We did these massive forensic investigations and figured out literally, like actually to the penny, how much the Sacklers took out every single year in the 10 or so years prior to the bankruptcy. And if the company was insolvent at any time, every dollar taken out by shareholders from that day forward is what's called a fraudulent transfer. To go back to our pizza case analogy, once you know that your pizza store can't pay its debts, if you as the stockholder try to empty the cash register and go home with the money, you're stealing from the creditors because it's no longer your company because they own it. Because if you can't pay the bills, you're no longer the owner. You know, just like you're, if, if you had a house and you couldn't pay the mortgage, the mortgage bank could foreclose on it, right? And if you tried to, you know, unscrew stuff from the, you know, bring, take the boiler and leave with it, 
you would that would be theft from the mortgage holder. It's a lien on the house and its fixtures, obviously, including the boiler. And then there were a variety of other causes of action with respect to their control of the company, their alleged domination, um, legal mumbo jumbo. I'm not sure the audience is so interested in, but alter ego, veil piercing, yeah. control person library. There are all sorts of other theories. You know, we went after the Sacros in a very big way. And along with both governmental creditor committees and private creditor committees, ultimately, you know, we all collectively negotiated a deal where they were going to pay or and are going to pay five and a half to six billion dollars over time um, you know, into the estate. Okay. Now, more generally, what are the skills that that need that you have to bring to bear in order to be successful at this particular line, this particular area of law? You know, I don't actually think they're different than the skills one would need to be successful in life in general. Um, you know, working really hard, being careful with details, having a great attitude, not being embarrassed a bit when you don't know something. You know, I tell sort of younger people all the time, never confuse ignorance with stupidity. Ignorance is nothing to be ashamed of. If you don't know something, just ask. Like, I don't know a hundred billion things. Um, you know, I don't know an infinite number of things. And so, you know, I, I think that as I sometimes joke that from the first day that someone arrives at our firm as a first year summer associate, I can tell whether they're going to be a partner here. Um, and it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also not, you know, there is sort of a level of focus and energy and smarts, obviously, um, and resilience that I think together just make you great at whatever you choose to do. Um, and, and it really is, I think, in us, I don't think there are any super special skills. Um, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of calm under pressure, you know, because very often we're sort of called onto the deck of the Titanic after it has hit the iceberg and it's sort of lurching and taking on water and sinking and listing. And so obviously if you sort of get, you know, incredibly frazzled yourself, you're probably less likely to be able to, um, assist, you know, a very difficult situation. You know, so we're kind of. I yeah, love your metaphors. Yeah, we're, we're we're sort of like we're, we're like an equivalent of like the harbor pilot that steers your trip your ship through a very complicated harbor that's filled with rocks and shoals and riptides, and sort of the SWAT team that lands on the deck of the Titanic. You know, we have a limited amount of time to save it, and we have to understand an awful lot about ships and propulsion and buoyancy and welding and all sorts of stuff, or else we're just going to run out of time before we can sort of keep the ship from sinking. Now, if, if I would look you up on Google and I would, I, I talk, I read about your cases and what the, what Yale Law Review is writing about you, they, they, they're, they're writing about how you're one of the celebrated, one of the top, um, one of the top lawyers in this field. What do you think? What is, what's unique about Marshall that, that, that puts you in a situation where you could be, you could excel in this field? Yeah. So my name for that is doormat to the stars. So that's sort of how I sort of characterize my stature in the field, which is I've done a very good job letting very successful people, you know, figure out how to, you know, use me as their doormat to figure out how to get over a dirty, difficult, complicated part of their corporate history. Um, you know, look, I, I mean, it, it's very hard to answer. I mean, a big part of it is that I'm actually very passionate about what I do. Um, and, I, you know, like when we did AIG, there was, a, you know, I, I didn't, really go home very much for about eight months. Um, and there was a, there, I mean, I'm Sabbath observant. So I was, went home on Shabbos, uh, but really not very much otherwise. 
Um, and there was a very strong feeling of like the world economy may hang in the balance. You know, if AIG were a supernova right after Lehman supernova, like the, there were dark predictions about what could have happened to the whole world economy and certainly the U.S. economy and the like. You know, when I think about some Purdue, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of victims desperately in need of resources and government programs and, you know, medically assisted treatment programs and the like. And I'm really working for the victims of the opioid crisis to get as much value as I can out of the company and out of the Sacklers, you know, for them. Something like Delta, there were 80,000 pensions on the line. And that's 80,000 individual families who may not be able to buy medicine or food if those things don't survive. Um, and so again, you know, the battlefield surgery of sometimes sawing off limbs is very, very painful and it, it should never be pretended otherwise. But, you know, for me, you know, it's been a very happy, I guess, circumstance that I feel like there's a tremendous social mission component to what I do, even though I do it, frankly, in a place that is a, an extraordinary uh, of extraordinary perch. Um, I'm, you know, obviously big New York law firm partners make a nice living. You know, I, I don't want to pretend for a minute that I sort of work for legal aid doing all these noble things. Like I'm a partner at a big fancy 200 year old law firm running a big department, you know, that has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenues. You know, we work very hard at what we do. And there are a lot of us in our department. Um, but I think that, you know, it's been very fortunate for me that by and large, most of the time, you know, like when I represented Ford Motor Company in their restructuring, GM and Chrysler both couldn't figure it out. And they both went into bankruptcy and had to take a huge amount of government money. And there were all sorts of, I'll just say complexities with the social engineering or what happened in those cases. Whereas when we did Ford, we did an impossibly complicated series of exchange offers and other balance sheet recapitalization efforts and they avoided bankruptcy entirely. So that also helped the company, helped its employees, helped the taxpayers, you know, and so I've been just very lucky that a lot of a lot of what I do really does does feel like sort of almost in you know a, a public interest job, even though I'm very, very much in the center of the private market as sort of a, a big law firm lawyer. Sounds like that's what really keeps you going. The fact that, that you can keep conscious of the fact that you're helping all these people is what is helping you to do a very good job as best as, best, as, best as you can. One hopes. So Marshall, I'd love to ask, of course, I'm a rabbi. I teach Torah. I'd love to ask, I know, I know you talked about your time in yeshiva and your time doing, doing different projects to help the disadvantaged. Can you please tell us how your... What, what's your involvement with your Judaism how it, and how it informs what you do professionally and in your family life also? Sure. Um, so one, one thing that is very funny and complicated often is just being strictly Shamash Shabbos um, and Shabbos Mitzvah in general. Um, but, you know, Shabbos has the most obvious impact on a sort of high-pressured, often very time-sensitive life. Um, and, you know, I, I've given advice now for many decades to other sort of from people going into really any professional world does not have to be law. And it's very, it's very straightforward, which is you need to do way, way more than your share always because no one else gets to disappear 25 hours a week and just say, sorry, just totally unavailable. No one else gets to in the middle of an insane around the clock push on Friday, say like, I'm out See you tomorrow night. Um, and I think that when people do it the right way, which is they work all night Saturday night when they have to, 
you know, they like don't even stay from Arev and they come running home. So that the second Shabbos is over, they can take the load back from their colleagues. You know, I, I've had partners who have walked home from lower Manhattan to Teaneck. I've walked home from my office again, very, pretty rarely. I've time of very that, especially these days. I've walked home because I literally couldn't get home before Shabbos any other way. You know, nicknames like 24-6 or three-star Shelly, that means you're doing it the right way. What's three-star Shelly? Don't get the joke. In other words, there was a, a guy who actually was in Musma Hawaii, Shelly, Shalom Cohen, Shelly Cohen, at a firm in Chicago. Everyone knew when, quote, the third star came out Saturday ah, night, because ah, ah. the second the third star was out, Shelly would be calling and back in the deal. So they called him three-star Shelly, because, you know, they knew exactly when Shabbos was over to the second because their phone rang and it was Shelly saying, I'm here. How can I take back over? Right. One of my nicknames early on, which I'm not super proud of, was actually 24 six, uh, which is kind of funny, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, and so, you know, balancing all those things. I mean, you know, uh, one, one thing that I joke about a lot, you know, I, um, you know, very often at business dinners, you know, I have food brought in. In New York, that's not so difficult. It's more difficult elsewhere. And I, I very often joke that all kosher food delivered by restaurants is packed by anti-Semites because they wrap it with layers and layers of this tape that is just like completely impossible. Like you need like, you know, like a, a laser welding machine to get this tape to get your food out. So long ago, I decided that I would ask the waiters to please take the plastic off, you know, it just in the kitchen right inside um, and then bring it out. And, and people have always been, I think, super respectful um, and, and very understanding as long as you do more than your share. You know, what becomes difficult is when I get calls that say things like, you know, Marshall, we have a new associate in our group who, who keeps saying he needs to leave at 1230 on Fridays. And is that right? Because that, that hasn't, that just like, I know that sunset was, a, is it like 420? And so, you know, sometimes I do it through someone else. I'm going to do it directly. Like you call up, they're like, well, you know, my, my spouse likes help, you know, with the final prep for Shabbos or cooking. It's like a hundred million percent totally not okay. DOA. Like it's actually a chil Hashem. It's a desecration of God's name. You have no right in the world to say, it's just nice for me to get home early and help. You stay up till two in the morning on Thursday night if your family needs help that you have to provide. But to say to your colleagues, you can stay and do my work and your wife or husband with the three kids they have at home cannot see you till midnight because someone else wanted to leave at 12.15 to go sort of you know, help vacuum the living room or help with the kids or whatever. Just It's just completely, utterly not okay. And so I think that as long as people keep in mind just how serious the obligation is to, you know, fulfill all of your halakhic obligations, but also fulfill all of your moral and professional obligations and strike that balance. I think it will go well for you. I think that when people start to use it as this is great, like, you know, we all, you know, I've always gone to Florida for Pesach. So like, sorry, I need to leave Tuesday, even though, you know, you know, Pesach is Thursday night when you're in the middle of a deal just completely not okay. Um, and so that, that's been sort of a big part of, and you know, I, I've, I've also watched the world get, at least in my corner of the world, so much more accommodating and respectful. You know, our firm, um, as I sometimes sort of sadly joke, you know, in the very famous case, Brown v. Board of Ed, you know, the desegregation case, 
Davis Polk represented Bordevet. So if you want to talk about being on the wrong side of history, we actually represented the school district, you know, fighting desegregation. And there were certainly no Jews and no Catholics and no women, as I said before. Interestingly enough, our first woman lawyer ever at Davis Polk, which is a very old line law school firm, uh, was a woman named Lydia Kess, who actually went to Brooklyn Law School at night, wore a shadal, uh, and fathered many children. And she has unbelievable stories about her opening years at Davis Polk, because the firm had never had a female lawyer before, let alone a from lawyer. And, and that combination was quite extraordinary, which shows you just how utterly brilliant she was, that she was the first woman ever to be hired by this firm um, as a lawyer. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a question of balance, but society is developing. I mean, like from my era, and, and I don't say this with pride, it's just the way it is. Like there's virtually no lawyer at a major law firm I can think of who wears his keypad work as on, on the male side of the equation. And that's halakhically appropriate because, you know, many people, including me, went to the Rebbeim way back when and, you know, wearing a keep at least what I was told at the time and what, what I lived this through is that, you know, that's a very important minhag, it's minhag Yisrael, but being the part your family and the other things you need to do is actually a halachic obligation and if you feel that one has to, to be compromised. Sorry, very much. Just to translate for for the audience in case they don't know the, the, the terms, just ah, providing sorry, let, let, providing let, let, let a let lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so the balance between um, adhering to the very strong custom that more or less has the force of law, we'll summarize it like that, of wearing a skull cap, um, has to be balanced against the obligation, which is absolute, to be able to earn a living and feed your family and do other things. Um, and so like in my era, you know, basically zero, like not one of the older firm partners, observing partners in my firm wears a keep at work, even though, you know, some of them are rabbis and some of them are, you know, at the border of ultra-Orthodox and you know, all the, the whole kit and caboodle, as they would say. Uh, now, these days, we have um, services at our firm every day in the conference room, both the afternoon and evening service. And of the, you know, 23, 24, 25, usually all male people who come, probably below the age of 35, 70% of them where they're keep up full time. Um, which is just a complete amazing transformation of how the world has developed. That does not mean, by the way, and I want to be clear about this, that it is easy or simple or straightforward. The decision to wear a keep at work or a shetel or whatever your form of religious observance in dress is, is a very complicated question. Um, and every person needs to decide it differently with guidance from themselves. It sometimes it may involve choosing a different career than the one you would have originally chosen if you feel strongly enough or your, you know, your, your religious decisors and you work out what your pathway is. So I don't want to suggest, oh, now everybody can do it. You know, that era is over. Not at all. You know, a huge number of fields where I think it would be very, very challenging and difficult. Um, I just note that at least in, in, in some ways, the world does continue to move forward in a way that makes it more hospitable. Beautiful. Okay. So now we're going to go to the second stage of this podcast. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but uh, the, the FTX situation and their bankruptcy, do you, what, what is your opinion on the whole situation? Yeah. So you, you can definitely assume I'm familiar. <laughs> I'm a familiar about, I don't know, 13 hours a day. Um, so 
I, I'm kind of like old school. When, I mean, I don't like have our ma- ma- money under a mattress, but like it's not so far off of that conceptually. I, I've always thought that the whole Bitcoin thing seemed to me like a terrible Ponzi scheme. You know, we had a very big role in the Madoff case, which was an actual Ponzi scheme that unfortunately took down many institutions and injured others very badly. We represented the New York Mets and the Wilpon family that was one of his biggest investors. I've never believed in Bitcoin. The whole thing started to kind of seem crazy to me. And, you know, I saw the other day a picture of Sam Bankman Fried when he was on a, on a, a, I guess a talk show or something with um, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were wearing, you know, very nice suits with no ties. And he was wearing literally like a grungy t-shirt, cargo shorts, and kind of basically looked like he just finished dumpster diving. And, you know, like I happen to dress quite casually. I actually wear shorts and a polo to work every day, which is unheard of in a big fancy law firm. But the notion of like going on an international media show with two former leaders of the free world and like showing up in like grungy cargo shorts and a t-shirt was pretty telling to me as someone who just doesn't really care at all about lots of things. And what's come out in the last two days, Nathan, is actually quite shocking he gave an interview to Vox last night, which you're interested in, you can look at, where he basically said, yeah, it was kind of like all a scam. And I was just kind of lying to people to get them to believe in us. And I didn't really believe there should be regulation. That was a storyline to manipulate politicians. I mean, lots of curse words in there, which I'm not going to use, you know, F this, F that, whatever. I mean, the fact that he's almost going on record admitting what looks like that the whole thing was a fraud. And today, the, the 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 new CEO filed just an extraordinary document that says, it, uh, "Never in my career, including working on Enron and a million other crazy fraud things, have I seen anything like this." You know, I mean, I, it seems pretty likely to me that a bunch of people are going to end up in prison, and it seems that's with very, very good reason. Um, the thing that's crazy, the craziest thing about today, is that there was actually an accusation from the the new clean team that the Bahama government is colluding with Freed to steal money from the U.S. bankruptcy estate. Um, and so it's really, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's truly insane. You know, someone who worked on Enron and worked on WorldCom and worked on Lehman and worked on Purdue, this is going to, is going to take them all. This is going to take the prize for like the most insane, like the whole thing may have just been like a multi-hundred billion dollar fraud. You know, because what brought down the company in the first instance, you know, he told everybody, unlike all these other dishonest people, like your money is totally safe with me. Except what he did was he secretly lent half of it to his own trading company and massively speculated in Bitcoin for their own profit. And they made really bad bets. So all the customers, it's, it's as if you put your money at JP Morgan and they just like literally took it and went to Vegas and put it on the, you know, sort of like roulette wheel, hoping that they would double their money, return yours and keep the difference, except they came back from Vegas without your money. Um, and so it's, it's, it's going to be, and there are going to be many more crypto failures because they're all interlocked. Like many other companies had their own assets housed at, S- at, at FTX, which was supposed to be safe, but it turns out it was a big fraud. So it's, it's going to be really bad, actually. Really Do you think um, more regulation should be put in place since, you know, crypto is is a, a very recent thing and there's really not much there for it? Yeah, I think the answer is probably yes. You know, again, I, 
sort of like Warren Buffett and others, you know, I don't, I'm very suspicious of things that I can't possibly understand no matter how much time I take. And the whole idea of like Bitcoin mining to use like endless amounts of computer power to somehow come up from like a computer server and say, here's like a code that's worth $30,000, like just knowing this string of numbers and letters when there's no underlying asset is very hard for me to get my arms around to extend that people continue to believe that this is a thing at all, i.e., you know, a set of currencies, you know, to use instead of national government, you know, reserve back issued currencies. Certainly, I think there needs to be radical change because a lot of people were lying to a lot of people. And now many, many, many billions of dollars of mom and pop and, and business and hedge fund and VC fund money is going to be burned in like a really toxic dumpster fire. So we shall see. Um, Liana, I see that you're off mute. Do you have anything you. you want to jump in on? Uh, no, I, I really enjoyed listening. And um, yeah, thank you. Sure. Totally my pleasure. Nathan, anything else from you? Um, I wanted to also ask for your opinion um, about the, the current market situation and what you think the future holds for us. Sure. So if I really knew how to answer that question, I would obviously be retired a long time ago, right? And so, in fact, ironically or not ironically, maybe it's not surprising at all, I'm actually not a particularly good investor. And so I tend to be really conservative and bland and boring. Um, what I will tell you is to the extent that restructuring professionals starting to get a lot busier um, is, is a good indicator that things are about to get a lot uglier. I'll tell you the restructuring professionals are getting a lot busier um, across the board. You know, our group has suddenly gotten re- very resource constrained in the last four or five, six weeks. Um, and that's before anything really visible and enormous has begun to hit the skids. There's just, you know, it's sort of like a popcorn popper, you know, when you're making popcorn, it's like quiet, 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 quiet. And it's like pop, 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 like pop, 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 pop. And then a few, a few minutes, it's like pop, 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 pop. So we're sort of in the like pop, pop, pop phase. Um, and, you know, look, I, again, I know nothing that, that frankly the rest of you don't know, but when you look at like really spiking interest rates and really ugly geopolitical risk and supply chain constraints and a lot of things that are just sort of broken. And then you add to that the fact that so many companies borrowed so much money to survive COVID and really borrowed you know, as much as they possibly could and then lived through some lean times. You know, not everybody can survive a multi-year drought, basically. Um, and that's sort of what it feels like. It feels like, you know, we, we had some very tough years and people borrowed to the hilt. And, and at some point, not everyone's going to be able to pay that back. So just a, 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 an observation. Um, so Tiffany, this was totally fun. Are we Thank drawing you. to a close? Anything else you want to ask about? Yeah, you know, I always ask a question. I, I meant to ask this in the in the one-on-one, but I can ask you here when everyone's, everyone's listening. What is it, if you could send a message to, let's say, a thousand Jewish young adults about what the Judaism means nowadays, what why it's important to go look into it. And, you know, obviously I'm on the, I'm a proponent of investigating one's Judaism. <laughs> and what, what would you say? What's the reason that, that somebody should take time looking into their, their own heritage and, and, and understand it better? I mean, is, the, is there, is there a single answer to that question? I don't there's know. A, there's, there's a single answer. So I, I mean, there's an answer here, that you here, could here, give. Here's what what, I would what, say. What's on your mind? What's on your mind? You know, I, I, we actually didn't spend any time discussing 
I mean, this everything we just discussed for the last hour is entirely secondary, right? Right. What's really primary is my four daughters and my three sons-in-law and my two. Uh, what's the plural of fetuses? Fidi on the way. Oh right? wow! Okay, um, and, that, and, that's sort of where, where, and that's where the anchor is. You know, as someone who has had the joy and privilege of, of raising four girls, I would say, you know, I know a lot of people with a lot of families. You know, leaving theology entirely aside for a minute, because I don't, you know, everyone's sort of theology is different. I, I just, I, I just, I don't know a system that comes even close to raising the kind of people that I think we should be raising and creating the kind of family that I think most people would want to be a part of. Um, and so I know that may be kind of like results oriented and not very quote religious in perspective. Obviously I could give theological, I mean, I, you know, I learned off Yomi, I do Atala, I do a lot of other stuff we didn't get into at all. So obviously I take the actual, like, you know, if I looked like Tuvia kind of side of Judaism quite seriously also, um, but to give an answer that, you know, since you said that we'll possibly broadly appeal to a thousand different Jewish young people, which I also assume means people of very different background and history and philosophical approach. I think that, that at least from my worldview, Orthodox Judaism creates, modern Orthodox Judaism, because I'm pretty modern in addition to being pretty Orthodox, just creates the type of people, the type of relationships, and the type of families that I think many of us would find it a privilege to be a part of. Okay. Thank you very much. That's where I'm going to go with. Okay. Thank you all so much. Super fun. Marshall, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.